Well, please be seated. Good morning again. Uh, I'm excited to be able to follow that song. That is an awesome song. Uh, Helen, you did a great job on that. Thank you for leading us on that. <coughs> Love that uh, Spanish twing, twang you put to it. It <laughs> adds so much to the song. So I have a question for you this morning, and that is, how do you feel about shadows? Now, when I say shadows, uh, maybe you come up with some things in your mind like, uh, like every horror movie you've ever seen, <laughs> right? Like in the night when the moon is bright and you see shadows on the wall and you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is that thing being cast on my wall? I was recently in Arizona and, and uh, we were there as the sun went down and we saw the shadows of the mountains, breathtaking beauty in Arizona. Uh, shadows uh, sometimes uh, get our minds to wonder. We, we wonder what in the world are those things, and we, 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 our imagination runs wild sometimes. Shadows actually are nothing new. Uh, we actually have had shadows around for a while. Uh, this actually is a uh, picture of a shadow theater. How many of you have ever heard of shadow theater before? Yeah, Shadow Theater actually is a, it's, it's kind of coming back. Uh, this Shadow Theater began way back in China, 200 years before Jesus Christ. Uh, they were doing, because you can do all kinds of stuff with shadows, like you can with animation that you can't do in real life. And so they had these shadows, and they would tell pictures with shadows on the wall using oil lamps or candles or whatever. And so this has been all the way through history. Now, if you're thinking it's kind of lost its place, I was watching America's Got Talent and saw one of the most amazing things I've ever seen using shadows. Uh, it, was, it was an incredible depiction of the life of a little girl until she got old. And, and they just walked you through her whole life. And if you've not seen it, this, I put a picture up there of it. Um, what's that guy's name? Uh, the guy that everybody doesn't like on... Uh, yeah, Simon, yeah. Simon was blown away by this one. So if you're interested in, uh, in seeing how far shadow theater has come along, it actually was a, a pretty big hit recently on America's Got Talent. As we finish up our study of the tabernacle today, as we get into Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter of Exodus, we come into this theme of shadows. We're finishing up our, our, talking, our talk today on what the tabernacle meant. And I have to tell you this, the tabernacle was God's great shadow production. Now let that sink in for a while because we're going to be talking about this theme all the way through Exodus 40. As we, as we finish up the story, the tabernacle was God's great shadow theater production. A production that shined a light on a greater truth to come a picture that shined a light on an image that had not yet been revealed. The tabernacle was shadows. In fact, by the time we get to the New Testament, Hebrews explains this theme to us. In the Old Testament, as they were going to tabernacle and as they were doing the sacrifices and as they were doing the festivals, all of, all of which they did faithfully, they didn't realize that this was only a shadow of things to come. But now for us on the other side, for us looking back over these 5,000 years of history, we come across this message in Hebrews 8 and verse 5 that tells us these things served as a copy of the shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, 
Ring a bell? That's the tabernacle. When Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. This tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. At the time, Moses was given some sort of a glimpse into heaven. God explained what the tabernacle should look like, and somehow it was a replica of a heavenly place, the throne room of God that existed on the earth. It was a shadow of a real place. Whether or not he actually saw inside the windows of the throne room of heaven is debatable. But whatever he saw, whatever was explained to him, he was able to construct through the Holy Spirit, through the, through the revelation of God, a place on this planet that looked like what heaven would look like. Key is the tabernacle was important to us because it is the symbol of God with us. God said when he built the tabernacle, he said, I want you to build everything exactly according to the dimensions that I am instructing you to build. I want you to build a house for me where I will dwell, where you can live in, in, in the, the tribes of Israel and peel back the curtain, the, the tent flap from your tent and you can see over the horizon where I am, my dwelling place. The tabernacle was important because it was a sensory infusion to the people. When they, when they walked there, when they got close, they could hear the bleeding of the lambs. And, and, and I went to a farm recently, and I have to tell you, the closer I got to the farm, the more I realized I was getting close to a farm. There was a smell that filled the air. There was noises, like, like the bleeding of a goat, and I tried to mock this goat by making a, and I did really poorly, so the goat started mocking me by bleeding back to me. And I could hear the cows in the distance, and the horses were running, and, and it, was, it, was, it was an infusion for these people that when they got close to the tabernacle, they were coming close to a, 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 a moment with God, and it impacted their senses. They could smell it. They could hear it. They could see it as they got closer to this place. The tabernacle was important because it was the place where God dwelt. It was different from any other place on the planet. And God chose to put his house right in the middle of his people. The reality was, though, that this tabernacle represented something greater. This tabernacle was not the thing. The tabernacle was a shadow of something greater, something real. And so God gives Moses directions as to how this place should look. And so I want to start by kind of backing up and helping us walk through all of the shadows of of, of everything on the earth that represented something real where God was. And, and so God builds his house down here and, he, and, and his dwelling place is full of these things. We can read about it. It's a recap in Exodus chapter 40. Almost like telling us, now I want you to remember, it's like Moses is finishing up Exodus and he's saying, I want you to remember what this place looks like because it's not gonna be with you forever. So I want you to remember what you saw I want you to remember what you hear. I want you to remember what you felt. I want you to remember what you smelt. And as a recap, Exodus chapter 40, last chapter of Exodus, we have a walk through the tabernacle. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent 
of the meeting. The picture of the tabernacle is, 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 is where this place would be. It's where God's dwelling place will be. I don't know, did I put a picture of the tabernacle up there? I don't remember if I put that up there. But every time the people saw this tabernacle, this is where they would remember God was. Verse 3, and you shall put in the ark of the testimony. Where was the ark of the testimony, church? It was behind the holy of holies in the tabernacle. You shall put in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with veil, with a veil. So the ark of the, of the testimony, this is the ark of the covenant. Remember what Indiana Jones went for? That was put into the holy of holies, and it was screened off by a veil. And then backing up from that, you shall bring in the table, when you put up the tabernacle, bring in the table, arrange it. You shall bring the lampstand and set up all the lamps. This is where we get the menorah from. This is like, this is like the seven-wicked candlestick. And then you shall put in the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. And you shall set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And so you move further back, and then you have the altar uh, the, uh, uh, the golden altar incense, the altar for incense, and then you back up and you have the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And then you back up picture, uh, further and you see more of a picture. You so, shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle at the tent of the meeting. And so you back up a little further and there's, the, there's this burnt offering where, where thousands and thousands of animals were bled out and killed. And then you back up further and you put a basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar and you see this basin full of water. This is where you cleansed yourself, where the priests would wash themselves off. And then you move back from there and verse 8 says, then you shall set up a court all around it and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. You can see the screen in front of the, the gates of the courts. All of these curtains around separated the ark, or the, 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 the ark inside and then the presence of God and his house among the people. Everything in the tabernacle had a purpose. The Ark of the Covenant had the mercy seat on top of it. This was a, a throne, really, that had nothing on it. The glory of the Lord was there in some form. The Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of that, this is where the blood was poured out once a year on the Day of Atonement. You had the veil separating the Holy of Holies, the table of showbread, the golden altar for incense. You had the menorah, that was the lampstand, the seven-wicked lampstand. You had the altar for burnt offering, a basin for water, and a screen around the courtyard. All of these were pictures, shadows of something greater. You see, the problem is Jesus Christ had not been revealed yet. Each part of this tabernacle represented something about God, and more specifically, each part of this tabernacle represented something about Jesus Christ. These things, these altars, these, temp these, these, uh, these uh, 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 candlesticks, the table of showbread, all had a, 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 a light shining a shadow through an image, and we know that image today as Jesus Christ. Everything was a shadow pointing to something greater. And the meaning in all of these items came out of that real source. When Jesus Christ was revealed his birth, this 3,000-year-old curtain fell. And it's like, like we're watching a, a shadow show and the curtain falls and we see the real image casting a shadow. 
The real image that gives the table of showbread meaning, the real image that gives the menorah meaning, the real image that gives the veil meaning, the real image that gives the mercy seat meaning. We see what was casting all these shadows. And once Jesus appeared, our eyes were clear. We saw the real image, and we realized it belongs to Jesus Christ. Moses got somehow a a picture of this image, and he somehow got, got insight as to what this tabernacle should look like. But he didn't know it was Jesus Christ. Only we can see that from the other side looking back. Whatever he experienced as to what this temple or this, this tabernacle would look like, it somehow was a representation of what he experienced with God on the mountain. How many of you know the story of Plato's cave? Do you know that story? Anybody like, uh, you like philosophy? <clears throat> Plato, <clears throat> you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, remember all these guys? Plato was a, a mind, a great mind that loved philosophy way back, actually, before Christ in Greece. Plato came up with an allegory of the cave. And Plato believed there was like a real whatever somewhere that we kind of got an image of on the earth. For instance, if I showed you 12 tables, you would say they're all tables, but they could look tremendously different. Some could have legs, some didn't have legs. I have a wicker something or other on my deck at home, and I refer to it as a table. And yet I also refer to that little thing holding the the projector up there as a table, but they look nothing similar. We refer to all of these different things as tables. So Plato said there is a very real table somewhere in in the great ether of the universe so that we recognize that's a table and that's a table and that's, they're all different tables, but they come from the great table that exists somewhere else. This was one of Plato's philosophies. And to explain this, he came up with an allegory of the cave. He said, we all, we're all like this individual who lives inside a cave. He's in there his whole life. And in the background, there's a fire. And the fire is casting shadows on the wall. And he lives his whole life in this cave believing the shadows are real. Until one day he rises up out of his cave and walks outside past the fire, realizing the fire is only casting shadows on the wall. He walks past the fire, he walks to the outside of the cave, and he finally sees reality. This is what life really holds. I don't know if you like that, but it's one of Plato's most memorable uh, um, uh, teachings that he had. It's called the Allegory of the Cave. In some ways, this is what the tabernacle was. It was a place where we saw shadows of something real, but we never knew what it was. The Israelites did not know what it was, not until the appearance of Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus, we realize all the other things are foreshadows of him. The Sabbath was given meaning because of Jesus. The holy days were given meaning because of Jesus. Festivals were because of Jesus. Everything on the Seder table that the Jews still celebrate today, everything points to Jesus. If you go to a Passover, a Pashat feast today, if you go to a Seder feast today, you will eat and experience things on that table that all represent something about the Exodus, something about 
Old Testament truths. But everything that you experience points toward Jesus Christ. At one point, let me just tell you, one of my favorite things on the Seder meal that you'll experience, and every child experiences this, they have three matzah pieces. They wrap them up in this cloth, and they put them in the middle of the table at the beginning of the meal. One on the top, one in the middle, and one on the bottom. Wrapped in this cloth, placed on the table. At some point in the meal, they will take the middle piece out of the cloth, and they will hide it in the house. And then at some point in the meal, they will tell the children, go find the piece and bring it back. And they bring the piece back and then they have prizes for the kid that found the actual matzah that was hid in the house. Does that, does that point to Jesus in any way for you? Let me clear up the shadows. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit always inseparable until one point of history when one of those pieces was taken out and hidden for three days. Which piece was it? The middle piece. Not the top, not the bottom. The middle piece taken out, hidden, and then replaced. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, th and then he died, and three days later, he, God, raised him from the dead. Everything, do you know they don't break any bones of the meal that they eat intentionally on Peshat? Do you know why? Because in scripture, no bone of Jesus was broken. He was beaten within an inch of his life twice. He was crucified on a cross. And when they finally came to the cross, they found two thieves that were still alive, but Jesus has already died, and they needed to make sure they died by sunset because Passover was coming, and so they did what to the two thieves? They, they broke their legs so that they would hang there and asphyxiate. They would suffocate to death. But they didn't break Jesus' bones because he was already dead. And the prophecy of the Old Testament is not a bone of his will be broken. And when the, when the Jews celebrate their Passover, even to this day, they do not break any bones. Listen, everything in the Old Testament celebrations of feasts, festivals, and the tabernacle pointed toward the person of Jesus Christ. Everything was fulfilled in him. He is the image that the light shined on, and those were the shadows given in the Old Testament. When we experience Jesus, we kind of go, oh, that's what that meant. Jesus started pulling the curtain back, and he did that actually with his own disciples first. We celebrate this at, at, uh, <clears throat> at, at communion, even in our own church. When we celebrate a communion, that is an experience of the Lord's Supper, the last supper Jesus has with his disciples. You remember this? Right before, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. Do you remember these words? We say them every time we do communion. And he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Remember that? This was Passover they were celebrating. He was changing the meaning of the matzah. This is not matzah. This is my body. I'm pulling back the curtain and explaining it to you. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup did not represent Jesus Christ for 3,000 years. And all of a sudden, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he pulls back the curtain and he says, this is the shadow you've been celebrating. Let me tell you the meaning behind it. This is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus is the image that shined the shadows throughout the tabernacle, their feasts and their festivals. The entire New Testament is about the curtain being pulled back. If you don't love God's word, you, you, you've got to read it in this context because you will read the New Testament in a brand new way, realizing the Old Testament talks about Jesus to come. The New Testament explains the Jesus that did come, and the Gospels are about the Jesus who was here. The entire Bible is about Jesus. He is the image whose shadows we read about in the Old Testament. We now know Jesus cast these shadows. 1 John 5, 20 says this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, Jesus has come so that we could understand the shadows. He has come to pull down the curtain and reveal the truth. Do you know why 1 John ends with little children keep yourself from idols? What it's saying is don't worship the shadows any longer. Don't give meaning to the shadows. Don't give meaning to the table of showbread, to the menorah. Don't give meaning to the, to the laver that, co that contained the water outside. Don't give meaning to the blood of bulls and goats. Give meaning to the real thing, Jesus Christ. Because if you give meaning to stuff that is not Jesus Christ, you have found an idol. That's why he says, keep yourselves from idol. It's like, it's like in, in Plato's version of the cave, it's like the guy walks outside, sees what's real and says, eh, I prefer the shadows and walks back into the cave. This is what it was like. This is why Paul the apostle was so upset with Jews that came to know the Lord that, was, that were converted to Christianity but still observed the Old Testament shadows because Paul was saying, don't you get it? All of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You don't have to follow the shadows anymore. Don't go back into the cave. You've experienced the real thing. People around them were saying that you weren't really Jewish if you followed Jesus. You've got to, you've got to do all of these devotions to these festivals and these feasts. You've got to start, uh, you can't stop eating kosher food. Get back there and eat the kosher food. But people, when they saw Jesus, they were going, wait a second, all that stuff was just shadows. Jesus is the real thing. We're not, we don't have to do the shadow stuff anymore. Let's do what Jesus wants us to do. People in the, Old Test or in the New Testament were judging these people that followed Jesus as heretics. You can see this in Colossians 2 and verse 16. It says, Paul the Apostle writes to the church at Colossae and he says, let no one pass judgment on you regarding questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals or new moons or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come. Read this church with me. I love verse 17. Would you read it with me? This is kind of the climax of it. Here we go, ready? These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Why would you go back in the cave and give any credence to the shadows when you know the real thing? The substance belongs to Christ. Christ is the image that casts the shadow. And, and, and we, look, we look at all those things now and we say, okay, okay how, how, did he, how was the lampstand a shadow of Jesus? Church, how was the lampstand a shadow of Jesus? Can I give you one phrase that Jesus said over and over? I am the light of the world. How is, how is the table of showbread a shadow of Jesus? Nobody could eat from the showbread. It was, it was a holy food, and you had to get it off there before it got moldy and replace it. It was like a sacrifice that sat out on a table. How is a table that held bread a shadow of Jesus? Did Jesus not only also say, I am the bread of life? How is a basin of water? Like Jesus. Jesus, on the day that that basin was filled, I, I, I was trying to remember what, and I, and I should have looked this up, but um, I think it was the Feast of, of um, uh, First Fruits. I think it was the Feast of First Fruits. And what they would do is they would take this big, big jar, and they would go down, and they would, they would fill it up in a pool, and they would walk it up to Jerusalem and people would walk up behind them and they were singing and they were dancing and they got up there and they would pour this water out at the basin and they would celebrate. This was a, a celebration of the basin of water. On that day, Jesus stands in the temple and you know what he does? If you read it in the Hebrew, he actually goes, oh! <laughs> and everybody turns to see who's this guy making all this attention and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and I will give him water that is everlasting. Jesus is our high priest. He tore the veil from top to bottom. And what greater picture do we have of the altar where all of those lambs were killed than the picture of Jesus, the very lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. You see, every picture in that tabernacle pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is why Jesus thought the whole Bible was about him. If you love Jesus, but you're not a follower of Jesus, you think Jesus is cool, you're kind of on board with him, maybe he was a good teacher, a good example, whatever, you need to understand Jesus was under the impression that everything in the Bible was about him. Now that is either Delusional or narcissistic or true? Jesus taught that the entire, when Jesus taught, he said, you've heard this verse? Well, let me tell you what it really means. Nobody ever taught like that. Every rabbi would teach, well, this is what Rabbi Jim would say, and this is what Rabbi Jerry would say, and this is what Rabbi Harry would say, <laughs> uh, picking these names. So that's how they, they would quote rabbi after rabbi. Jesus did not teach like that. You know how Jesus taught? You've heard it said, but I say to you, why? Because he's constantly giving the truth. Jesus is teaching from a base where he thinks the entire Bible is about him. One of my greatest examples of this that I love is the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Do you know this story? When Jesus rises from the dead, on the day he rose from the dead, two guys, very depressed individuals, were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're traveling this road. They're going home. They thought Jesus was a Messiah. Other people had come before Jesus. They said they were the Messiah. Some different people came along, and they were shown to be false 
But Jesus was never shown to be false. Instead, he was killed. So everybody that followed Jesus was like, oh, another fraud. These guys were le left Jerusalem. Jesus had been killed and put into a tomb, and they're walking home. <laughs> three, three days later, I guess it was three days later, not the very day. Three days later, they're walking home, and they're talking, and they're depressed. And you know who shows up and starts walking with them? Jesus does. They don't see him. They don't see him for who he is. They don't recognize him. Somehow he, he hides himself from, from them. I don't know how, but they didn't recognize it was Jesus. So Jesus comes up, starts walking. I love this story. Jesus had a sense of humor. He's walking out. He walks alongside them and goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they go, have you been in Jerusalem? Like, have you been living under a rock? You don't know what's going on? We thought Jesus was the guy. Everybody thought Jesus was the guy, and they killed him. One of my favorite verses is out of that story, and here's where it goes. Here's how it goes. Jesus starts walking with them and explains to them in Luke 24, 27, listen to this, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning who, church? He started with Moses and explained to them, that was me, that was me, that was me, oh, and that's me, and that's me, and that's me. <laughs> Can you imagine walking on the road to Jerusalem and going, I didn't know that's all those things. What, what in the world? What? And, and so they have this great theological lesson. Is it ever one, uh, wonder when they got home, they asked him to have lunch with them? Stick around. We've really enjoyed this conversation. We'd like for you to. And then Jesus, it says, breaks bread with them at lunch. And their eyes were open. I often wonder what that was like. Like, do you think it's like he broke the bread and passed it to them and then they saw the holes in his hand? I don't know. But somehow they realized they had just been talking with Jesus. Listen, Jesus was under the impression the entire Bible was about him. Everything from Moses before and forward, all things concerning himself. Verse 24, back in Exodus. For Christ entered not in, uh, sorry, this is uh, back in Hebrews. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear uh, in the presence of God on our behalf. That's a wrong verse there. That's in Hebrews. These Old Testament things were copies of the true things. Jesus is the real light, the real lamb, the real water of life, slain as the real lamb of God for the sins of the entire earth. No animals were needed any longer. No lampstand was needed to remind us there's light in a dark world. No bread getting moldy that needs to be replaced to remind us we need deeper food from heaven. No elected high priest needed to go behind curtains because we would never have access. All of these pictures were fulfilled when Jesus showed up. The blood of bulls and goats worked as a shadow for the image to be revealed, but now Jesus walks on the day he's crucified, his blood leading through this temple, through this tabernacle, giving meaning to everything as we walk through and see the laver of water and the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the menorah that gives light. He has become our mediator so that we can have a path to God and it's he who has broken 
that division between our sin and God's holiness so that we can walk to God through his blood and have a relationship with the Father. So we come to the last few verses of Exodus. Exodus 40, starting, skipping down to verse 34. These verses are to remind us that there is a glory coming that will be revealed. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When God wanted them to move, the glory of the Lord would move. When God wanted them to stay, the glory of the Lord would stay. Their only job was to follow what God wanted them to do. Go where God wanted them to go. Do what God asked them to do. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would walk out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they didn't set out on that day until it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, the fire was on it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, through all their journeys, God was with them wherever they went. And his glory could be seen to anyone that would peel back their tent and see it. God never abandoned them. He went with them where they went. All the Israelites could see his glory. They could see his presence and be reminded that God is with them. The story of Exodus ends with a great description of the shadow. This cloud meant God was with them. And I want to tell you, this is exactly the way the Gospels begin. In the book of Ezekiel, you may not know this, but in the book of Ezekiel, the cloud goes up from the temple and it's not seen again. 400 years of silence occurs after that. That's during the time of Anthony and Cleopatra, you know all those stories. Rome rises to power, Pharisees, Sadducees appear out of nowhere, and all of a sudden Herod's got a temple built. All of this happens during the 400 years. And then the Gospels start, and we open to the book of Matthew, and the first thing we read is, you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. See, in the Old Testament, God had left the tabernacle. But the New Testament opens with the phrase, God is back. God with us. And by the time you get to John 1, chapter, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 9, you say, uh, John is writing and he says, the true light which gives light to everyone <laughs> was coming into the world. In verse 14 it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his what, church? We have seen his glory, that glory of the tabernacle, the, the shadow of the real thing. We have seen his glory, glory as the one only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God, this image that casts the shadows is now being revealed. God's glory has come to earth. And when we see Jesus, when the disciples saw Jesus, when the Pharisees mocked Jesus, when, the, when those temple guards uh, stripped and, and, and whipped Jesus, it was God that they were seeing. It was God that they were feeling. It was God they were smelling. It was God that they were breaking. It was a shadow revealed. It was a real thing. That's why John writes another letter not in the Gospels, but a letter in 1 John 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have, listen to this, we have heard him, that which we have seen with our eyes, 
that which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. You know what that word manifest means? It means revealed, caused to be seen. That life was manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You know what he's saying in 1 John? He's saying, he's screaming to us, the shadow is gone. The real thing has come. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. Can you imagine touching Jesus? Can you imagine breastfeeding Jesus? I know that's crazy, right? Breastfeeding God. Can you imagine changing God's diapers? Can you imagine feeding God your soup? This Jesus was raised by two human adults that got to touch God in a very real, in fact, when Jesus rose from the dead, he came back to his disciples. Thomas said, unless I see him, I'm not gonna believe that, you remember this? Because we are such creatures of senses, right? I gotta see it, I gotta taste it, I gotta touch it, I don't believe it's real until I act. So Thomas says, unless I see him, I'm not gonna believe it. Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, not only can you see me, but put your hand in here and feel this hole right here. Thrust your hand in the hole and know because your senses do not deceive you. You're touching the risen Christ. Thomas says, listen, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that's enough. Do you know what Jesus said to Thomas at that point? He said, Thomas, have I been with you so long? And you say, see the Father. If you're seeing me, you've seen God. God with us the image that casts the shadow, the exact imprint of God, the perfect imprint that casts all of these imperfect shadows revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the Old Testament talks about Jesus to come. That's why Jesus is revealed in the New Testament as God with us, God's glory revealed to us. And that's why in the New Testament, everything explains Jesus because the entire Bible is about Jesus and the entire tabernacle is about Jesus and the entire earth, your life, is really about Jesus. It's his story. We talk about history. You have to understand, history is his story and you're invited to be a part of it. Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1 and verse 1. This is how Hebrews starts in the New Testament. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, church, would you say this to me, with me? He has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through who also he created the world. Verse three, read it with me, here we go. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Church, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. If you've gone to Tabernacle in Exodus, you've learned about Jesus. If you've listened to the prophets of old, you've heard about Jesus. You didn't know it. You didn't understand it. They were just shadows. But when Jesus shows up in Matthew 1 and the angel said, you shall call his name Emmanuel for he will be God with us, you're going, oh, right, that's what that means. That's the image that casts the Old Testament shadows. He is the very imprint of God. So what? Number one, church, trust God. 
<laughs> I know, I finish everyone with this, right? Trust God. What does that have to do with Old Testament stuff? Simply this. God has a habit of not sharing his details with anybody else. So, if you're going through a rough patch in your life and you're thinking to yourself, if God would just write in the sky whatever he's doing, I'd be okay with this. You have to understand the people of the Old Testament went to tabernacle and temple for 3,000 years and didn't know it was about Jesus. All they did was exactly what God told them to do. When the cloud went, they'd pack up and they would go. When the cloud stayed, they'd make camp and they would stay. And nothing has changed for us today, church. When God tells you to move, you move. When God tells you to stay, you stay. And when God tells you, this is what I'm doing, you go, I believe it. And when God says, this is what I'm going to do, you say, I believe that too. But when God says, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing right here, you go, that's good. <laughs> you must know something that I don't. And here's the deal. If you knew what God knows, you do what God does every time. The process in the tabernacle was simply this. Would they obey with the information they had? And the question to us is the same. Will you obey God with the information that God has given to you? He's given to you his whole word. He's given to you the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's given to us quite a bit. But the question is, will you obey God with the information you have now? Or will you demand more? Will you demand control? Will you argue with God? You see, God's only interested as if you'll take that relationship seriously. And I have to tell you, in the nation of Israel, there were lots of people that did not obey God. They did not love God. In fact, they were waiting for the first moment they could to rebel against God. You know this because they were constantly nipping at Moses' heels. There were all kinds of rebels in that group. And they looked like they belonged. They'd say, that's an Israelite. But it was an Israelite who was not faithful. In church, all God asks from us is simply genuine faithfulness. Nothing changes for us today. God hardly ever tells us what he's doing today. I have lots of questions for God. I'm sure that you do too. But you know what? You can bring all those questions to God in prayer. God may not give you a writing in the sky and tell you what he's doing in your life or in the world around you, but he simply says, this is what I'm gonna give you for now. Will you be faithful? And God gives us in the process of prayer the ability to have a strength that we never knew we had. In fact, prayer, God says, has the power to move mountains. If prayer is our greatest avenue to God, shouldn't we be doing it more? In fact, Paul the Apostle said, pray without stopping. I think that's good for us. It will grow our faith. The question is, will I obey God, not when times are easy, but will I obey God in all things? We will never know the complete plan of God. I, I can imagine, like, Moses had to think at some point, uh, forgive me, I, I just got to walk down this path for, for one second with you. Moses had to think at one point, you want a candlestick with seven wicks? Like, one wick should be just fine. Let's get seven single candles. Why get one big massive candle that is top heavy that's going to fall over and burn this sucker to the ground? Why are we, why, seven wick candlestick? I mean, he had to come across some of this stuff and, and, and think to himself, uh, like, okay, 
we got to burn this animal on the altar but take out the liver and cut off a piece of the liver that has the lobe in it? Like, what is that about? I have to imagine Moses probably had a game going with some of the Israelites. Like, the top ten weird things about tabernacle. <laughs> and, and he had to have prizes. Like, what's the weirdest thing we do that you don't understand? But they had to do it. They didn't understand that it was a shadow that pointed to Jesus. They just had to be faithful. And so they were. The Bible says to Moses back then and to us today, one day you will understand. Simply remain faithful. By the way, church, this is what separates the believer from the non-believer. This is the very thing. The person that doesn't believe God has no fear of God. And so they don't believe, and there's no consequences they believe for their lives. But the person that follows God believes that there is a God and that he loves us and has given us a greater purpose. And we follow and trust him because he helps us be faithful even in the tough times. This is the thing that separates believers from non-believers. The second thing I would tell you is just a recap. Jesus is the full revelation of God to humankind. A revelation of all the detailed shadows of the Old Testament can be understood when you come to Jesus Christ. The gospel is literally called the gospel because it is the good news of Jesus Christ. Every shadow can be understood when you come to Jesus. This is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm telling you the truth, and you've got to believe it. Jesus is the truth that clears up dark eyes. And listen, let me just finish with this. If you're thinking to yourself, I got friends in my life, and they just, they think in a weird way. They just have weird thoughts. They believe anything that they're told. They think weird things about a lot of different things, and I can't believe the way they think sometimes. Do you have friends in your life that are like that? I do. And I look at them and go, how can you think like that? That makes no sense. But to them, it makes perfect sense. And I think to myself, how is that even possible? Listen, Jesus is the truth that clears up dark eyes. Let me give you a passage of scripture so that you can see this even better. 2 Corinthians 3.12. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that veil remains unlifted. People can read the Old Testament. People can be followers of the Jewish law and never see Jesus Christ. And you're thinking to yourself, everything points to Jesus. How can you not not see this? That veil remains unlifted because only, read this with me, church, only through Christ is it taken away. Only when you come to Jesus, that veil is removed and you go, oh, that's what that was. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil, church, is removed. If you're a follower of Christ and you're thinking to yourself, I can't believe other people think these weird ways, anybody could see the reality of this going on, you need to understand you probably are seeing something because the veil has been lifted off your eyes, but their eyes remain covered. Verse 18, talking to us, the church, this is great. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus Christ, 
Jesus is the image that shined all of those shadows of the Old Testament. Jesus is the very glory of God. Jesus says to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jack, you've got to get on board. I am the image casting all these shadows. I am the glory that has come to earth. And when John writes about it, we have seen his glory, the, the glory of the one and only. Verse 18 says in 2 Corinthians, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord of the Spirit. Do you know what that means? It means if the veil has been lifted, if you see Jesus, you need to understand God has put you in a process where you would not only see Jesus, but look like Jesus on a daily basis. So that you look like the image, the very image of God. When you see Jesus, you're like Coca-Cola. You've seen the real thing. That is the image casting the shadows. That is who our minds are conformed to think like. That is why we don't conform to the world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We don't get transformed by the shadows. We get transformed into the image casting the shadows. God's tabernacle was all about God with us. And you remember the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptizing, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you, and don't forget, I am, remember? And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the world. Church, God is with us. God has never left us. And because we have the Holy Spirit, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, God is with us wherever we go. Isn't that great? The glory of the Lord doesn't live in a tabernacle. That was just a shadow. Jesus has come to show us a real image, and if you follow Jesus Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. He makes his residence in you. And 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you know that your body is not your own? You are bought with a price. You know the price? The blood that flowed on that cross. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Church, you are the tabernacle of the living God. How does that change your aspect, your, your view of life? How does that change? When, God, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, does that kind of light it up for you a little bit more now? You are the light of the world. Yeah. You bring light to the dark in the way that you live, in the way that you obey, in the way that you're faithful to the God who is faithful to you. Let's pray. So, Father God, we come to the end of Exodus, and we're reminded that your great desire to be with us. There's a love there that we cannot explain. And it's more than we deserve. But it's from a benevolent being that chose to give us every shadow for 3,000 years that pointed toward Jesus who was revealed to us as your very image so that for 2,000 more years we would look back and understand who you are and who we are. Thank you for giving our lives meaning. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you are with us no matter what happens. Thank you that Jesus has been revealed and we get to look back on history and understand it from that vantage point. May we never go back to worshiping shadows. 
We never go back to thinking the shadows are the real thing. May we worship the true and living image of the one and only Godhead. That is Jesus Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We finish our services with communion. We do so because we want to make sure that the gospel is clearly presented. I think that it has been this morning, and for some reason, the Lord has put a movie into my mind to share with you. Uh, I wasn't planning on this, so if it goes south, it's his fault. All right. I even forget the name of the movie, but where's the, what is the name of the movie where, um, uh, where Jesus shows up and tells him to build an ark? Jim Carrey to build, is it Jim Carrey to build, Jim, um, yeah, Evan Almighty, is it Evan Almighty? Uh, yeah, the dude shows up, you remember the, what's his name? No, it wasn't Steve Carell, it was a, uh, no, it was in the wrong movie. Anyway, um, anyway, it was it was one of those movies, Evan Almighty or the other one that I I think I'm thinking of. What is it? Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty. Maybe that was. No, I don't know. Whatever it was, but there's a moment of time where God shows up and starts talking to whichever the star was, whether it was uh, Steve Carroll or or, uh, or uh, Jim Carrey, but whatever it was, uh, God shows up and gives him revelation. Maybe it was the flood one. It was the flood one. Whatever that one was, Evan Almighty. So he shows up and he starts telling this hero, whatever it is, to build an ark. He has no idea why he's building an ark. He's just building an ark. And we're watching the movie, and I still can remember, I can't remember any much about the movie, but I can remember the conversation I had with my kids afterwards because the conversation was, that can't be Jesus. That can't be God. Showing up and talking to Jim Carrey or whoever it was. Evan Almighty or Steve Carroll, whatever it was. That can't be him. And I said, why not? And they said, because the only image that God ever shows up in is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only visible image of the invisible God. Now think about that. That erases just about 95% of all false religions on the planet because Jesus is the only real image of the Godhead. You don't see God the Father, you don't see God the Holy Spirit, you cannot see them, they are spirit. The only image of God is Jesus. Because when we see him, we see the image casting all the shadows. That's why the cross is so important. Only Jesus died on the cross. Only his blood was God blood. And when you eat and you drink for communion, be reminded that this is Jesus we're remembering. Not some esoteric bridge that gets us to God. This is Jesus. He is the one who came, died on the cross, gave us his body, and shed his blood so that we could have a relationship with God. It was his hand that handed the disciples these items and said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed. For and it was before his crucifixion. Jesus is saying, this is what you're going to do to remember me. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. Hope that rocks your world. When we do this, 
I don't know how the Lord has visited you today, what realities he has reminded you of or revealed to you in a new way, but whatever he has, we're going to give you a moment before we take communion just to thank him for that. Thank him for visiting with you today. Thank him for whatever he has revealed to you today. Thank him for whatever he has reminded. This is your moment to spend with God. And then the band is going to play, and if you would come up and you can, in-house, you can get this little cup and the, the bread and the top of it. Take it back. Don't, don't eat yet. Just hang on to it. I'm going to do the same thing, and then I'm going to come up, and I'm going to eat and drink with you. Why? Because we're all in this together. We're all sinners in need of saving grace from Jesus Christ. So just hang on to it. I'll come up. I'll read a passage of scripture. We'll eat and drink together at home. If you're new with us, we want you to join us too. The reason that we do this is because there's no magical molecular weirdness, mysticism that takes place to make this cracker anything more than a cracker or the juice anything more than, than stuff that came from grapes or whatever it was manufactured from. This is just a reminder, and so we'd encourage you at home, get some crackers, get, get some something you can eat, and grab, grab a little juice or something from the fridge. Participate with us, because we, we do this together in remembrance of him. That's the meaning of communion, not the fact that any molecular weirdness takes place. We do this in remembrance of him. We do this to remind ourselves this is a gospel that saves yesterday, today, and forever. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that, um, spend some time with the Lord. I, I'm, I'm going to uh, pray after that and then come on up and get, get your items. We're going to sing. I'm going to read a passage of scripture. We're going to eat and drink together, and then I'll finish up the service. Let me give you a few moments to spend with the Lord.